Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is An Ermine in Chernopol, written by Gregor von Rizori and translated by Philip Bohm. The novel was first published in 1958 and then republished by New York Review Book Classics in 2012. And we are lucky to be joined today by writer, poet, editor, translator, Alina Stefanescu. Welcome. Thank you so much. I will just start by reading the back of the book as a way of giving the listeners a quick summary of what the book is about. Set just after World War I in Ermin and Chernobyl, centers on the tragicomic fate of Tildy, an erstwhile officer in the army of the now defunct Austro-Hungarian Empire. Determined to defend the virtue of his cheating wife at any cost, Rizori surrounds Tildy with a host of fantastic characters, engaging us in a kaleidoscopic experience of a city where nothing is as it appears. A city of discordant voices, of wild ugliness, and heartbreaking disappointment. In which, however, laughter was everywhere, part of the air we breathed, a cackling tension in the atmosphere, always ready to erupt in showers of sparks or discharge itself in thunderous peals. Alina, we gave you complete free-range choice of any NYRB classic you wanted for this episode, and you picked this book. Why, why did you do that? What, 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 was, what, what was it about this book that made you decide to talk about it today? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. One is that Gregor von Rizori's language is so rich. It's so just such a mm-hmm. vivid rendering of life. And Philip's translation is incredible. He uses archaic language intentionally. He really pays deep and close attention to the writer's voice. And when I read this book, I felt as if I was living or could live in this place called Chernobyl. And I was fascinated because it's a history of a city that did exist, but it's a fantasy city. It's an invented city. It's a neo-mythological city in which laughter carries a lot of the stories. And there's just a tremendous amount of symbolism and history to the city itself that I was also interested in discussing. Mm -hmm. That's the short. (laughs) We'll definitely get into all the details after that then. Yeah. So we wanted to just talk a little bit about Rizori's life first. So he was born in, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Cernowitz. I think that, I mean, it, it would depend on when. <laughs> depend on who you ask. Yeah. Right. So he was born in 1914 and the city of his birth becomes the Cernopol of his invention in this book. So when he was born, that city was a part of Austria-Hungary. Today, it is part of Ukraine. So Rizori wrote novels as well as screenplays and radio plays. He also found success as an actor. He was fluent in many, many languages and held many citizenships throughout his life. He was also stateless for one period. And I think that that shifting sense of identity, that pluralism that surrounded him in his biography and the theatricality of his character mm-hmm. in his like acting and stage presence is definitely reflected in the spirit of this book. I agree. Yeah. Dandy. The dandy. I, Von Rosari was a dandy in many ways. He was, he was opulent in life as well. He was the polyphony that you mentioned, the multiple voices that he inhabited and the multiple identities and his reluctance to elect or choose between them um, mm. is also thematic in the this book mm-hmm. i uh i described him as basically a real life version of the dosaki's most interesting man in the world 
<laughs> that was my that was my best description for Azori because it just seems like everything you wanted to imagine he he did it at some point in his life. Yes, yes, he was he he lived very very much. He lived. There's a sort of ecstasy to his mm-hmm. to his life, an insistence on it, which I think is interesting given the tenor of the times that he lived through, and what he saw. Part of that is related to the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to, to discuss the empire as something which many people miss. But if you go into certain books, especially Jewish literature from Eastern Europe and the time, there is a longing for the pre-national identities of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which allowed mm-hmm. minorities a little bit more leeway than, than the genocide which followed. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned this to me, but you were recommended this book by Philip. Did he recommend it to you after he translated it, or was this when he was like working on it or before he had started working on it? So I was really fortunate to speak to Philip Baum after I was reading his translation of Ingeborg Bachmann's Molina. And I was very curious about some lines that I had found, and specifically about this island that she references in the book. And so I emailed him and we got in this conversation. And he said, you know, you should read this other book I translated mm. because we started talking about Chernowitz, Chernowitz, and he had a copy sent to me. And I fell in love with it. And, and again, it's so different from Bachman, so different from his translation of Bachman. He's an incredible, mm. an incredible translator, mm-hmm. just such a, an incredible playwright as well. But his attention to language and his love for language really comes out in his translations. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things we like to discuss before we really get into the meat and bones of the book is the cover art that is chosen for the NYRB classic. And I took some notes on what the representation of this cover it is. It is a painting by Max Beckman titled Beginning. It is the central panel of a triptych of autobiographical paintings where his dream world and school days collide. And Beckman was very famous for his realistic depictions of the horrors in 1930s Germany. So when we combine all these sort of points together from this artistic history of the painter, of this painting, it goes along incredibly well with what the book is representing. And we keep finding that, don't we? When we do these little sections on (laughs) the things that they pick for the covers, it's incredibly distinctly the book itself in ways that I don't think I could have ever found a painting that represented the book as well as this as they did yeah it's great the colors of it you see this like woman sprawled out in the front and like a man with a saber on top of a horse it does definitely gives you some of the spirit of the book mm-hmm. i agree and the cover to me you can almost see tildy's daughter you can almost i don't know i could read mm-hmm. in her with the red hair mm. i read i don't know take that back I read the streetwalker named Mititika Povarchuk. So Mititika means in Romanian, it means the little little one, and it's oh. it means the little one. But it's also a, a first name. Romanian has a lot of diminutive forms that are that involve littleness, and so you can have a some of the characters in here are imposing, but their name is something like little something. Yeah. Oh, so really? It's Oh yeah, it's just the humor, the humor in the language itself. Mm. And 
he is, I think, familiar with, he knows the languages well enough, Von Rosori does, to play with them. Mm-hmm. It's it's nice to know that, like, you understand some of that language as well, and you're able to, like, share that with our discussion. Because that is stuff we never, ever would have picked up on. Right. So the, so the parents, so the parents of Colonel Mitika Tuturyuk, which Mi, Mitika is, again, it's not Mititika, that's the feminine mm-hmm. of this ball. This is his, the masculine little bit, <laughs> but he's the colonel, okay? So you have the, Von Rizori is always pointing towards the absurd too, or gesturing towards mm-hmm. the absurdity with a mixture of, horror mm-hmm. and let you know there's a sort of fatalism sometimes i think to this book if if one would have an ethical issue with it that might be that might be it interesting all right let's launch into our discussion of the book proper so as we said cernible of the novel is based on the author's hometown which is a real city why do we think risori chose to mask and mythologize the city in this manner? Sorry, it's a big question. <laughs> it is. It is a big question. Well, I think he explicitly refers, per masking, he explicitly refers towards the end of the book, I think it's page 353, he says, um, to keep one's mask, I'm not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing him, still full of the promise of countless faces is sort of the goal. And the tragedy of what happens to the young prostitute is that the mask, the thing which for Juan Rosori lays bare rather than conceal, mm-hmm. right? The mask is the thing you wear and that plays into his his role as an actor, mm-hmm. expresses the erotic. And what happens to her is that she is frozen in the erotic or frozen. Any, pla- any way in which we're frozen is our death for Von Rosori. And the mask that we can't take off and switch is our death, metaphorically. He plays with that idea. And that goes, I think, back to his references about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And also the, the way in which, you know, people are saying, the way he evokes the landscape as something which never changes, but always changes, mm-hmm. right? It never changes, but it always changes. So there is a comfort in constant change and flexibility that he invokes, which is the opposite of what a nationalist identity would mm. would inscribe. So if you think of a, of a thriving city as one in which it's, you can look at the minorities, how, how are the minorities, are they thriving in the city? It's usually a good sign of how much vitality there is there. And as that grows more rigid, as masks become grown into the flesh or interpreted as the flesh, you have something closer to a corpse or a death mask, an image I think he he points out to towards the end. He points. That's fantastic. I don't know, I don't know if I can follow that. That was extremely well <laughs> said. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where he got it. Like there are a lot. There was a tradition of death masks too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like a, there mm-hmm. it was a thing, and you see it like you know I think Lenin had one, and it was sort of a elite practice to have your death mask. But I don't know. I only have a very um, silly representation of that, but there's a Twilight Zone episode where these people all put on masks to celebrate their father's like 95th birthday. And when he finally dies at midnight, they all take their masks off and they become the mask. So that really reminded me of that. So our next discussion point is the main 
plot, in quotation marks, of the book centers on the character of Tildy, who goes on a quest to defend the honor of his sister-in-law, who is a prostitute. He's motivated by a traditional sense of loyalty that maybe doesn't apply to his era anymore. As a result, the book is compared to, like, Don Quixote, and Rizori does kind of make that explicit. I thought we could talk about Tildy's virtue as well as, like, his self-delusion and how that fuels the book. I mean, you know, that Tildy's character is interesting. It's expansive. I'm, I'm not even sure that it's settled. I'm not sure that it is a distinct, constant shape. Sometimes I felt that because there are autobiographical aspects to this book, sometimes I felt like Tildy was um, the character that Von Rosori tried on. Sure. Um, mm. You know, he would wander into him mm -hmm. and wander out of him. And um, so I'm not sure <clears throat> in terms of development, you know, I'm not sure it's a difficult question you know, whether or how this character develops, if at all, if it's like the Don Quixote with an element of the quest in mm -hmm. it, I think it really upends the quest because the place is the character. The place and the relation to the place seems to me to be more the character, the, the strongest character in the book. When you say Tildy like changed for you at certain points, is that in certain sections of the book or is this when you've like, if you've read reread it? that it's different every time you read it, how you view Tildy. I think I'm, Tildy always feels to me slightly unsettled. Mm -hmm. They're just a unsettled, unset quality. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. His quest to go to every superior officer and challenge them to a duel was one of my favorite parts of the book. It was so humorous and very sad at the same time. Right. I mean, and, and that's part of this, you know, part of the, the fantastic painting and portraiture that, that Von Rizori brings. You know, the lines like, the late summer sunsets still reflected the glory of the sunken Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so, of course, here comes Tildy. What do you do? You challenge them to a duel because all the old, all the old codes could not prepare people for what was coming and happening for the normalization of fascism, mm -hmm. for the all of the old honors, even the idea of honor. How can the idea of honor exist after Nazism, right? What is, and, and the Nazis used the idea of honor. Yeah. They idealized knights. They, you know, sanctified these particular stories, including, you know, the Parsifal myth, et cetera. So I think, I think there's, an interesting irresolution to Von Rosori's use of mythology mm -hmm. as a mode and a process. And he says that again in the mask section, he says, mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, the problem with, the problem is when the content is created from the form. So when the mask consigns the wearer in a way to eternity on the basis of recognition, right? So mm -hmm. when the form is so tight, that's it. You, you are sort of trapped. There's a recursiveness in, in this book and in the motion, I think. Sure. I don't know if that makes sense. It's funny because there's so, there's so many ways in which one could talk about this book. I mean, mm -hmm. there's Fraulein Iliutz when the colonel has his ball 
and they ask her, what does it mean to lose your face? And Von Rizzori italicizes to lose your face. Mm -hmm. And he italicizes another phrase regularly throughout the book, which is a phrase I, I felt like I had become a literary character. He'll have, he'll use italics to say as if I was in a novel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's an interesting setting apart, um, almost like an aside, but also a theme that runs. It's very metafiction. He's, he's looking at that fourth wall and kind of not necessarily breaking it, but kind of like poking at it and seeing if it chips. Mm -hmm. He'll frequently say like, I know this isn't the way I should tell a story, but I'm going to introduce a character here really late in the game. Oh my God. I I love it where he did that. Like, (laughs) I don't know, probably a third of the way through the book and that character doesn't come back to the final chapter. And I was just like, God, this is what I love in literature when they do interesting and fun things like that. Exactly that. And, and he uses humor. He mocks the Mm. modern world. He mocks the post World War II world, in a sense. So he says, thus, after Uncle Sergei told us about the vast homeland of the aristocracy, we were no longer plagued by the doubt that Tildy might have some blemish because he came from the same tribe as Professor Fuhrer, right? So mm-hmm. this, there's a jokingness. This is, this is a child's voice speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Only the child mm-hmm. could think about the tribe in such a exclusivist and determinative way. Um, mm-hmm. And I love like later when, oh, what's the sister that takes them, the kids to the meetings? Oh, you mean the aunt? Yeah, one of the mother's sisters. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the name written down. And it's, is it Aunt Paulette? I think so. But when you talk about like sort of the childhood look of exclusivist ideas when it comes to approaching someone like Tildy or something, when they get thrown into those meetings and they start having to process like what these adults are talking about and they freeze up in almost terror at what's going on, reminds me a lot of that as well. Yep. There's the great section 17 or chapter 17, Many Eyes, a sports fest in Chernobyl. Great chapter. And that's when, like all children and tender lovers, I also loved not just one, but many at once. I loved... Tamara Tildy on account of her excruciating inner turmoil and the feminine tawdriness of her lost and faded elegance, right? So you have, mm-hmm. but then before that, he prefaces it with, we consider ourselves free and view others as free as long as, and then he italicizes, we can see through their faces. And then the mm-hmm. italics end, because they have been shaped in the same way that our face, which we cannot see, has been shaped. But where a different world has left its imprint to obstruct our vision, we recognize just how much we are trapped behind our own masks. And then there's this line which I always keep from this book, which is, in fact, we never truly love the other, but merely the different world he represents. Mm. There are a lot of social critiques that are undeveloped but implicit, I think, in, in Von Rizzori's exoticizing to some extent which he's mm-hmm. aware of i don't think it, i don't mm-hmm. think it's subconscious for him i think he knows mythology does exactly that and it's a very childhood sense of exoticism and mythologizing yes i agree i agree but the other really interesting thing that this book does that struck me or why i wanted why i can't forget it is because it actually mentions very real 
landmarks and things from Romanian history during the Second World War. It refers specifically to the athletic clubs that formed that were the nests of fascism, the health movements, mm-hmm. the big the big focus on health and wellness that was such a was a precursor to a lot of the Nazi organizations, which is interesting if you think of it in the current context and our obsessions with wellness, health, you know, all of the the cleanliness and hygiene associated with that. But um, more specifically with the beaches of Chernobyl. Do you all remember the part where he discusses the beach or the island? Mm -hmm. You do? Do you have any like thoughts on it or was it? Sadly, I don't remember it too well. I just, (laughs) I can remember parts that he's like, he, he talks about different areas like the hills I love the road outside the house where sort of Tildy makes a very red carpet entrance into their lives almost, but I don't, I I, I do struggle at some points to remember all the, how I reacted to all the details. I did love your point about the italicizings. I'm going to have to reread parts and really focus on when he italicizes stuff. That's really cool. If you write down or look, I had, if I had a PDF coffee, I would have gone through and made a list of his italics. I would have just cut mm-hmm. them out mm. and made a list and seen if there was another story there because I can yeah. absolutely see Von Rizzori doing that. The reason I mentioned the beaches is because there were beaches there. And reading Marianne Hirsch, who is an incredible scholar, she wrote a book called Ghosts of Home, The Afterlife of Chernovitz in Jewish History. Chernovitz is the city where her parents lived or were from and she wants to go back and visit it they never talk about it or if they talk about it they talk about it fondly as a great cultural center as a sort of the place of their youth and it's also the place where the ss came in and jews were killed it was not a it was it is a dark place and so hirsch is trying to understand why they have this positive memory or this fond idealistic memory and she uses this word post memory her attempt to recover mm-hmm. and fill in the memory of her parents or their Chernovitz. So everybody has their Chernovitz. Mm-hmm. It's Cher- Chernovitz now, right? For everyone who lives there now, for this city, which is majority Ukrainian and is a part of Ukraine. Russia has always wanted Vukovina, which is that area, and has always tried to get it. It is not a surprise historically that that's happening again. Uh, it's just something that they've always tried. But I want to go back to the beaches because I can wander off forever. So there was a Jewish. <laughs> That's what we be- like. <laughs> well, it's very resorty of you. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to do it. I'm I'm mad at myself because I'm doing it. So it's Marianne, great. Honestly, this is fantastic. You have no <laughs> idea how much junk I have written in my notebooks about this. And- <laughs> So it's all just sitting there in this sort of chaos uh, that I think about. So Marianne Hirsch calls these ghosts of home. That's what she's talking about. And she's using the post memory as a signal of time and to invoke the posthumosity of the actual city itself that is being Mm -hmm. invoked. Their Chernovitz doesn't exist. Von Rizzori's Chernobyl never existed, right? I mean, that's that name, that title was never used. So she's trying to find out if her parents wore the yellow star when that edict was passed in the city. Um, And their memories are fuzzy. But she finds in their photos a photo of the poet Ilana Shmuli wearing it, who is now 
went to Israel. Chernovitz, of course, is the town. Chernovitz is the German word for it. At the time when the Hirsches lived there and when Paul Celan lived there, the Romanians would have called it Chernovitz. Mm. But there was a large German-speaking minority, many of whom were Jewish. And so von Rizuri regularly mentions the German community there. I, I couldn't help feeling Paul Celan's presence, Shmueli's presence in this book that he was writing. The people, the ghosts who had vanished mm-hmm. and the story in the back. So the town actually became one of the spots where that led to the detention camp or the, the stopping ground for the, for the Vapniarka. I think that's the way you pronounce it. It was the Soviet training camp, which was also oh, doubled wow. the place where um, Trotskyists, communists, socialists, Christian Adventists were kept, but the majority were Jews. And wow. many, many died. In June 1942 was, I think, the, the end of the hiatus and deportations. And then suddenly politicals were included in the roundups. Sure. Paul Salon's parents were deported in this round of June 1942. So there's this retrospective witness that comes to all of this. And I say that because Paul Salon, by his friend Petra Solomon, was often compared to Kafka. Kafka, in the recent translation by uh, Ross Benjamin, Kafka, he just did this great translation of all of Kafka's notebooks. And there we find... Kafka saying, you know, I'm having trouble writing right now because, well, something cool happened. I went to this swimming school in Chernoshitz. Chernoshitz, I think, is how he writes wow. it. And um, I learned how to swim. And also, quote, I have stopped being ashamed of my body. So in Celan's books and in his discussions, there's some, you know, things that happen along the beaches there that are romantic there's a there's a sort of a a way in which the surfaces in this book it gives us landmarks that mm-hmm. if you are interested in this city or this time or this period and the writers associated with it you feel them as bumps as you read and mm. i think that part haunts and touches touches me you know, in, in the same way that the that the humor touches me, in the way that his constant reference to the advertisements, the changing city, the mm-hmm. the press, the leading daily vocha or the voice, which is obviously in Romanian, so at the time he's talking about Romanian, goes so far as to publish a lead article under the headline Chernobyl, a center of the international drug trade, which made numerous unsubtle allusions to the case of Major Tildy. Mm-hmm. So you have this huge world, this huge, you know, mythological Chernobyl. And then you also have Von Rizori's acknowledgement by titling a chapter on the myth of childhood, right? Mm-hmm. The myth of childhood. His uh, mm-hmm. chapter titlings are fantastic. Like the... Yeah, um, they are amazing. Learning about the beauty of war or something, and then the faces in the crowd. I just really like the way he, like... You wouldn't fully understand what he's going to get into by just reading the, the title itself, but by the end of the chapter, you get exactly what he's referencing when at the start. Right. I think that's true. I think that's true. And they, the, ti- the chapter's titles, it's fun to go back and read chapter titles alone mm-hmm. as another, mm-hmm. the, 
taking the paratext as its own story and as its own mm -hmm. contrasting frame or the exhibition in the gallery, the way the, the paintings are each presented. And it, it, you can see it a little bit differently, I think, that way as well. All right. So going back to the character of Tildy, and I loved how you described him as an unsettled figure, you know, who's swapping masks and, or maybe being projected from the narrator into him. But one of the characteristics of Tildy that distinguishes him from the rest of the city folk is his lack of a sense of humor. And that's stressed as being like part of why he, you know, <laughs> the journey that he goes on from being this officer to being in an insane asylum, that is what fuels it. And we talked about the humor in contrast to the hauntedness of the city. What, what role does the humor play for you? It's, it seems like it's a survival mechanism for the people. It's a way of being and existing, but um, I just wondered like what your read of that was. Absolutely. As my mother used to say, laughter and tears are, share the same breath. They are always tied. There is living, the Balkans have never known a period of time that wasn't filled with tragedy made by their neighbors. Whoever your neighbor is, whatever, you know, the, and whatever myths are used to justify it, um, that is how it has been for a long time. I'm not saying it has to be that way. I'm not a fatalist about anything. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that power is problematic and demagogues are prominent. I think humor is sometimes the only thing you can do when you look back and you think of the absurdity, just the absolute absurdity, right? The, the reason why absurdism was developed, and Daniel Carms did it in the Soviet Union, the absurd is a tragic commentary as well. You know, Beckett used it in that sense. So going back to Tildy and the humor then, the first section, right, he starts off, and I'm curious to know if you think that he's describing Tildy in that very first section that follows the epigraph where he begins, there are other realities besides and beyond our own, which is the only one we know and therefore the only one we think exists. And then he talks about the man staggering out and he says, his face is the crater field of some lost satellite. His face is tired, but he also has the deadly serious parody of a clown, right? The deadly, again, you see this contrast right from the beginning. The deadly serious parody of a clown. Just such a tightly bound circle. And then his senses are seething with impulses. The din of the tavern, philosophical disputes, pride, humiliation, love, quotations, dirty jokes, hate, loneliness, faith, purity, despair. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know his way home. Home is, you know, gone. And then on the next page, he says he travels from one end of the town to the other. The city lies somewhere in the godforsaken southeastern part of Europe and is called Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. He knows nothing of its reality, right? And he's walking through it. So he fails to hear the plaintive call of the trains as they part from the city of Chernobyl one by one and race off. And then he ends this pre-section, this preface with, for each is lost in a solitude, all his own, people as well as cities. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at a reading kind of later in the book that I think reflects almost the finality that that sort of brings up at the beginning about sort of the humor and the relationship between tragedy and humor. You might accuse me of loving chaos. That's not true. 
I merely believe that nature's idea of order is stronger than that of human beings. And I owe this insight not least to Chernobyl. You consider its spirit corrosive, I do as well, except that I consider it a kind of destruction that is more economical than our own measures to guard against destruction. General Petrescu's praiseworthy attempt to spare the city a bloodbath, which would have in fact been satisfied with a few broken noses, cost 40 lives. The spirit of Chernobyl seized these 40 deaths, you can call it corpse robbing as far as I'm concerned, and then it, in italicize, and made a joke about it. <laughs> that sounds despicable, but I may remind you how much sorrow, what abundance of painful experience is required to produce a joke. Generations sink into their graves before the grotesque quality of a particular human situation that might have been the original cause of their torments, or even death, becomes clear enough to be expressed in humor. While the laughter triggers cannot cause a single tear to become unshed, it does forgive all faults. For Chernobyl, it only took 40 dead people to create, in italicized, a symbolum, an allegorical seal of grotesque human, all too well human situation. A story is making the rounds that on the night, a giant policeman, in other words, a defender of order, sent to protect Jews against anti-Semites, raised his rifle butt high and started lambasting away at a small Jewish man who cried, Stop! What's going on? I'm not a Nazi. To which the policeman replied, But I am! With the exception of Uncle Sergei, no one laughed, but her, Terem Golian, didn't seem to have been looking to elicit merriment at all. I can't think of anything more characteristic for Chernobyl, he said. I mean, that's exactly, and to follow that with the first line from the first chapter, if you were to ask me to explain in no more words than I have fingers on one hand what elevated Chernobyl above other cities of the earth, I would have to say lowliness was never <laughs> right? So yeah. he begins, if, if you're going to be upset that he's describing people as wretched or he begins, this is actually what nobody held against each other yeah. in Chernobyl. Chernobyl ended when all of those things became what you held against each other. In the passage that you quoted for, there's a reference to a symbolum, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting reference, I think, because from what I remember, the symbolum was, maybe it was ancient Greek or Rome, it was two broke, you made a promise and broke two bones, or broke a bone in half, and then when you met the other person, it was like a sort of validating seal that the other person was who oh, they wow. were. And your bones could meet mm. together. I think I read that in Ann Carson, of all people. But, um, <laughs> and if I'm remembering correctly, but I don't know if that's just taking that idea of that bone, that broken bone that has to be rejoined or recognizing, recognizing, rejoining. The, the, the idea of recognition plays into the masks here the sense of self and also the way the city recognizes its own, right? Yeah. Tilly can't laugh. He's the only foreign <laughs> thing in a sense mm-hmm. through the spirit of Chernobyl. And so the question then becomes, you know, what is foreignness? What does it mean to be foreign? Yeah. You know, um, and he defines it not in terms of ethnicity or in terms of religion, but, or even in terms of language but in terms of the spirit. And that's kind of the beauty of like the multiculturalism of this city. And by the end, some of its inhabitants have decided that that is what's wrong about it. And that therefore they feel foreign, even though they are of that city. 
but they are not of that mind anymore. Something's broken. That's exactly, and you know, it's what I love too is for me, it felt like a a non-assimilationist coexistence. So in the conflict about multiculturalism and the, the melting pot and the idea that you actually all become something recognizably American, right? Which means, do I have to stop speaking Romanian? Is it an insult to, you know, my mother-in-law if I speak Romanian? Is that a crime against her? Am I talking about her or am I just existing as myself? Is that okay? Do I, you know, do we have to erase who we are in order to be permitted to belong in a space? Will the mask dry on my face and kill me then? Do I have to die in this version mm-hmm. created to make a few people happy or feel safe? I don't know. I think these are big questions and they're not finished. And they're interesting to consider in literature. I think literature is a really good way to unpack or approach them even more precisely because they, it doesn't promise us answers. Mm-hmm. And the the context of the book ha- grows as time goes on. So like you can read more and more into this book in the present and surely in the future than even Rizori, who was already layering the dead bones and the different masks of different cities and different names and religions and languages. Yeah, that's right. And he uses he uses so there's so much. Jewish culture in this book, he draws heavily on on Jewish culture and on and on on Jewish jokes, on on the the vibrant social intercourse of the time, on the on the salons, on the spaces mm-hmm. in which people gather to read books, the stuff that that was mentioned by many who left, many who were exiled. So there's a an interesting take on nostalgia here that plays into using nostalgia for speculative nonfiction. And I would argue that Von Rizzori does something really interesting that plays into the present, where I think speculative nonfiction, which is what what Marianne Hirsch does in Ghosts of Home to some extent, Mm -hmm. allows us to take risks that we cannot take theoretically, in theory or in in, um, the development of a thought, if we are sticking to a specific fact as articulated in a document or archive. And I say this because if you look at the archives or the surveillance files from Romanian, the dictatorship in Romania, you're going to read a lot of untruths about people. A lot of, because that was the whole game and the whole goal. And the, and the people, the authors of those files were people who imprisoned others they were they served a carceral system that was the entire goal those files are authored by paranoia the desire to imprison and to maintain a dictatorship so documentary evidence is important but it is authored it is not neutral in many ways and um, when it comes to a surveillance file not when it comes to you know but even a map even a map i think hirsch discusses the maps of the camps outside of Chernobyl and how she can't figure, no one wants to acknowledge where the Jewish prisoners were kept. Mm-hmm. So she wanders around with this map, she goes to, this, to the Russians and no one wants to tell her because all of their maps call it something else. Oh. And so mm. again, even these names, the name of the town, right? What it means now in the present, 
you know, it is part of Ukraine and it has to, it is important that it is acknowledged and called that. Someone who wants to express hate for the people who live there will use the Russian word, right? Or the Romanian one, right? So, and that's a threat. So, Von mm. Rizori, in choosing the word Chernobyl, also wanted to speak to that, but mm. but again, placed it outside of the reality. Yeah. Well, the book is narrated by a in the first person by an unnamed child, and we never ever know exactly who this is, though. It does seem like it is Rizori in some way himself. <laughs> But this child has access to the thoughts and feelings of sorts of characters that no child would ever reasonably have access to. <laughs> and Rizori makes the quote-unquote myth of childhood a central theme of the book. What did, what did you think about this approach to the narration itself specifically? Because I don't find a lot of books written like this. I think the, the narration is so modern. I mean, I think we're mm-hmm. looking at a book that uses this Baroque language and these sort of hyperbolic scenarios to do something that is really modern, right? All of the different forms that he invokes, whether it's the quest or the myth or the, all of these forms are played with, but they don't stick. And everyone who tries to force the form to stick on the face or on Chernobyl ruins it, right? Yeah. Destroys it, kills it. That's the, the, the death mask. So there, I'm interested in how modern this book is in many yeah. ways and how daring it is because it is so polyphonic, because it borrows all of the different languages, because it uses italics in this sort of almost like a stage direction or bracketed way that creates, yeah. he's here the holy words. So if this is a Bible in the book of Chernobyl, you know, what are the holy words that we italicize? <laughs> we need a word cloud. We need to take all the italicized and make a word cloud. Right, right, right. And, and I think, it, you know, wanting to imagine, so childhood to me is, is an incredible space in which everything is still possible. Yeah. Adulthood is when you realize it's not. Maturity is when all of the wild things are killed and all of the material ones become real those are the true things so you want a house you want those are that's kind of the way we describe these developments we don't really think of someone who's talking about the fairies as mature we think that that's (laughs) lovely and whimsical right (laughs) or creative (laughs) not mature it's not down to earth down to earth is boots on the ground in many ways. And I think he also contrasts the imaginative capacity of childhood. Imagination is something that is hopeful with the maturity of not laughing and not finding things funny and seriousness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what was really fascinating about the book was how, to me, one, one of the many things, was how it's not a wartime book, and yet war and the specter of war is everywhere, like both in the past and the the future that we know is coming. What did you make of the book's relationship to war? It is giving us the, I think, the, there are, I'm not sure, it's something I've wondered, 
Did Von Rizzori feel himself not the right person to tell mm. a story that wasn't his, in a sense? Mm. There are some stories that I think if you aren't Jewish and you are speaking of that time, a writer may feel they are not the best person to tell the story. On the other hand, he tells a very intimate story of the Jewish community in what was Chernovitz at the time. And the war is almost surreal. So it's there, I can read it and I can track locations that he mentions. And then I can pick up Marion Hirsch's book, which doesn't mention Von Rizzori. Mm -hmm. And I can find the locations that he loosely references with all of the facts and the tragedy surrounding them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the war is there. The war is, but I think the war is always there in a way. The war True. is always potentially there. And he is writing it from the perspective of that child voice, but also from the we that is the city, all of us, we, the Chernobyl, right? The, the disbelieving. I mean, it's a very good question, and I don't have a definite answer. I don't. Sure. I don't know why there is a hussar, for example, in the text, <laughs> right? I love the depiction, like you say, even peace has some element of war in it, or it might, right? And the kids describe, think of identity as being inherently linked to violence. And their idea of nationalism as being the only time we ever heard about nations was in relationship to war. That's a paraphrase of something the kids say. So even though we're in this interwar period, it's like simply the fact of a Jew being a Jew and having this community is putting them in harm's way. And the kids are witnesses and actors in that before they're even like fully cognizant of all of the underlying history or, you know, have the moral imagination to understand the bigger questions that they're at the center of here. I mean, in Romania, some of the most horrific things happened against the Jews in Bukovina. And at the same time, the city, Chernovitz, was, had a large, thriving Jewish minority. And they were deeply involved in the civic activities and the schools, they, they played a large role in the politics. So if you look at the resentment, right, of the, of the nationalist Romanians and the anti-Semites, in this case, you can see it, there's an easier line to trace between war and nationalism and resentment because there, it was just such a, a rich, long community that existed there. And he, he alludes to it. And it's hard for me to say, because I know now more about the city than I knew when I first started the book. Mm. It's hard for me to say what I'm projecting, what's real, what's not. It's hard for me to, to really identify those things. There is a part where he mentions the first encounter with the Hussar, where he says, I think every childhood has such secret passions, images in which we lose ourselves completely, and with all our unbridled emotion, whether we encounter them in a personal landscape, a book, or some other object we desire, perhaps life uses these images as lessons, and, or whatever other truths may be derived from the sheer power of truisms. 
he to show us that we are at the mercy of fate, that we cannot control everything, that nothing is known for sure. Mm-hmm. And he, there's not, it's not a didactic book, right? He's not, he's not giving us a lesson, I think. I think he's pointing to a lot of different things, but there's no single lesson. There's, no, there's nothing being preached in this book. He's not, he's just... Yeah, we don't ever get to the war that the preaching could like be like, now this is the horrible thing that happened. We almost understand the lesson because we know history itself. So the book doesn't have to preach it to us almost. Right. So remember the part where he talks about Herpanko as the angel of the immigrants? Yes. Um, right. And then What there's... a funny character that just shows up for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, he's the reputed, you know, he rescued the purported daughter of the czar. There's always... <laughs> This is, yeah, yeah, that yeah. whole thing where he was like he some she he somehow got her out of like a basement like out of the that was great great I mean and that's and that look von Rizori von in German is a title that's usually associated mm-hmm. with nobility right or with aristocracy of some sort he he circulated in those worlds and in their humor I think mm-hmm. I think that's what he what he brought from it. But, you know, he he also here is talking about how life becomes a sort of ecstasy. And he watches the sayings, the conventional sayings, God bless you, followed by the, these juxtapositions of, you know, the older woman spitting a sunflower seed and then crossing <laughs> herself. And then, you know, just these weird juxtapositions of the sacred and the profane that yeah. I think are mm-hmm. so interesting. There is no, again, lowliness is the defiant, you know, characteristic of this town. And mm-hmm. the sacred and the profane exist in constant tango with each other, not in opposition, but in a dance. Yeah. And so you can't have this purity you, that you want without ending the dance entirely. Mm-hmm. And you can't have the truth, the fact, I think, without ending the fancy, in a sense. Yeah. In his book. I mean, he does... And he does lay into, like, in this section with Tanya's generosity, he does tell us what's happening. He says, Professor Fuhrer wrote an article denouncing the fact that five of the seven doctors at the asylum were Jewish. Mm-hmm. That created a lot of bad blood, and that's why those two were replaced, because of the pressure from the nationalists. Yeah. Then you have the mention of the poets in the Foreign Legion. You have slowly this layering, this quiet thing happening in the background. So you could also ask, what prevent is this related to how fascism is normalized and why nothing why it's so hard to stop it why no one why no one opposes it when they still can if they still can Mm -hmm. right i don't know the creep of the anti-semitism it rises throughout the book Mm -hmm. so he he does seem to be graphing it throughout his structure of his narrative in the same way that it might occur in a society and you don't even seem to fully realize it's there until it's too late. Almost like the people that lived there also probably had to live with that, which was like, oh, it's here in pockets. Like, it's just a small thing. And then, oh, it's kind of growing. But like, it's, it's also still a minority. And then just until then, it's like, oh, no, it's all gone. And that's when the, the fight breaks out in the football stadium. And then the 40 lives are lost in the brawls. And then just kind of tumbles even from there. 
I also think about also in that part where they talk about the violence that occurs on that day. They're in a carriage with Uncle Sergei and someone gets shot like basically in front of these children. And Sergei like brushes it off as a joke to the kids like, oh, he just tripped over his like shoelace. He got, he, like, got knocked by a horse. Like he's fine. Exactly. Um, definitely not fine. He's dead. He's very dead. But that goes back to this humor and how these people in the city would handle something terrifying like that. Yeah, it's exactly right. And the journalists, there's the interesting sort of towards the end, you know, the journalists play this yeah. role. Like, Well, here we are. Somebody needs to say something and I'm going to quote Nietzsche, which they've just discovered. Right. And, <laughs> you know, use him. Don't you yearn from the very bottom of your heart to belong, right? To know that this place is yours, to not be the weak, whatever. And the journalist sort of positions himself as the speaker. But also, he says, you laugh, my esteemed friends, but deep down, you also feel envy for such a person who is happily isolated. And there's this interesting extent to which envy, I think, becomes a louder emotional palette Mm -hmm. as the book develops just various the colors i think of envy that are contrasted with this sort of idealism mask envy i don't know i don't know if there's Mm -hmm. that but we are you know when we get to the end we've got those who are craving to be a witness to the revenge that mircha dolbosh is going to have on quote the jews not a person anymore. It's not personal. Now it's, right, a group. And that, that movement happens two paragraphs after a tennis match describing the rise of sports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sports. Which, you know, Stalin, Stalin's wife and all of the Aparachik women went and played tennis every day during lunch. Okay, this is what they did. They, mm. they did the same thing that the women in the capitalist country clubs did here in the U.S. Sure. They were in the same circles. They had the same people fixing up their clothes. The elite is the elite everywhere. Yeah. And mm. the games that they play are often the games we aspire to be able to play. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting class, social, economic element to this book. There's just such an incredible number of characters in this book. Some are there for a short period of time. Some appear throughout the narrative. I was just wondering if you wanted to shout out a kind of sleeper favorite character (laughs) um, that you thought added a lot of like color and different dimension. Well, I don't I don't know. Do you have any that are your that are your preferred sleeper characters? Um, I love the the seamstress, the children's yes. hunchback seamstress, and how they, they describe her. Because the, the book has a fascination with the grotesque or with deformity and with interesting anatomy, right? And so the kids are like fascinated by her hunchback, but also by her beauty. And there is this merging of ugliness and beauty in mm-hmm. her and like a softness. And she she's often one of the characters... A lot of the book is just long monologues of a character talking, talking, talking and going in circles and often repeating the same thing three times in a one story. And then there's other characters that play the more of the listener role. And she's often the one who's just absorbing other people's declarative statements. So. <laughs> I love that you mentioned her. Yeah. yeah. She, to me, 
that's such a good example of something else that he does in this book because that is decadence, right? That's what Baudelaire did when he said, you know who's beautiful is the woman who takes off her leg, or I don't remember exactly what his example was, mm. right? But it's a de beauty, the beauty invoked by decadence was this, the, the fin de siècle beauty that was so threatening was absolutely unhygienic and grotesque. Yeah. It was, you know, a middle finger to the hygiene and professionalism and the, the nice clothing and the whatever of the elite. And if Chernobyl is a city that embodies this decadence, right, this lowliness, decadence is always what Nazis and all dictatorships use sure. when they say this city will be destroyed. It's what in the Bible, right? Isn't Babylon the decadent, right? I mean, the, the threat of decadence is always has this sort of puritanical or religious undertone, moral undertone. And so mm -hmm. the beauty that you describe of the seamstress is very much in line with this, where the mysterious is also ravishing and fascinating and, you know, the erotic is complicated. It's not, it's not equivalent to the obviously beautiful or the glossy mm -hmm. woman on the billboard kind of thing. And I, my favorite character probably was Pascanu, if that's how you pronounce his name. But for a book that's so often hinting at what is to come, he is an interesting character that is genuinely of the, the time and the class before. He is this older man he had like these two wives who died clutching a, a, a jewel of his together. And he, <laughs> it hints that he's like a, a, a smuggler of gems and stuff. Right. And he, he's, he's from this like really old wealth and he's, he's built this house for himself. And, you know, he started as a peasant and he's grown himself into this like empire. He's, he's like this Draculan ruler over the city. Um, that it, and I find him fascinating how they introduce him that like, oh, he'll die over the graves of his two wives that are clutching his gem. And it, it's something that feels, you know, this very honorific and Shakespearean mythologized idea of death. And then it turns out his death was him trying to hang himself to gain some like sympathy back because like the town had basically turned against him and turned into this form of Nazism instead of this class of respectabilism and stuff and he was like his daughter was supposed to come rescue him that he had abandoned for so many years and she just was like yeah no he's gonna die and so <laughs> it brings up this like fatalism but at the same time contradiction between what you would expect of this character from the beginning to the end and i, I god i love every time i went to Vescanu and the first chapter that's really about him is like something like the birds above the city right I love that part. It's great. I love the birds above. I mean, I I think I've quoted that in in the novel that I'm working on. There's a scene like his birds above. The yes, it's awesome. so memorable to me. The the description of them was just so beautiful. I like, like it's mm -hmm. so timeless. Uh, and you're reminding me now. I'm going to just quote an italicized version. <laughs> called, quote, the horror of literary existence, the void that engulfs us when we have too little actual experience. That's the what he calls the horror mm -hmm. of literary existence. But yes, I think Pescano does represent this, this world where decadence was possible. And you're making me also think how, remember when I quoted the newspaper headline that said, yeah. 
um, Chernobyl was the capital of the drug trade or the, the, the smuggling. So all of those phrases, again, in a city where Jews had public roles and played a role in the civic life, all of those phrases would come back and come back as conspiracy theories. Yeah. Okay. Later, when they're looking, when they're looking for some story to invent, and that's those headlines start regurgitating the the gems clutched. But what about is Pascano Jewish? No, right? He's not, right? No, and there's a really one of my favorite like sections of the whole book is he calls Brill this uh, Jewish notary accountant sort of person. He calls him into his house one day and. It describes like Brill, small old old man Brill walking through this grand entrance, and it felt like, it felt like a painting. It was amazing, mm-hmm. and Brill coming in, and Pascado himself doesn't necessarily like Jewish people, and Brill keeps on questioning, like, why are you asking me to come basically do your diamond dealing and giving me a lot of money for it? And there's this difference between this sense of like he's still a part of this town to Pascano, unlike the people that would hate Jews in the more modern sense, this upcoming Nazism. And then like when Brill goes away, another man comes in and that's the hair. um, What's his name? I know I should have written the names down. I'm I'm regretting that now. But like he comes in and like it it feels like there's this massive conspiracy going on and then Brill's arrested and nothing happens because this world can't exist anymore of this grandiose city and Right. And the only real conspiracy is that being hatched by the Nazis in their little sports clubs and their dens. Yeah. I mean, that's the conspiracy that's taking place beneath all of this, which he alludes mm-hmm. to you know, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beneath all this Baroque, you know, there's that happening and he alludes to it. And he's, you know, in Farewell to Childhood, in the chapter towards the end, he says, <sighs> but don't forget... We are in large part Latins and Orientals. Our jealousy is directed less at a particular person, the given favorite of a mood or of an hour, and more towards the impulse to love that which we love ourselves. This blinding passion sharpens our sight. We suffer whenever we sense that someone else understands how to love better than we do. Mm-hmm. And then he, so he basically is referring to Chernobyl because he continues in the next section. True love is the approving kind, the kind that lets something be the way it is. I have never mm-hmm. wanted to change Chernobyl in any of its qualities. The idea of order as perceived by the military mind strikes me as inapplicable. To create order in Chernobyl would mean to kill Chernobyl. Yeah. And, and I think that actually just goes into the part that I read earlier. I think it's almost exactly it does. A, It is right after. It comes right after. A puzzle after. piece. Almost. Exactly. It's exactly. And, and that is, yeah. you know, and that is the note but also you know when i read it it just it hurt to read i I have a hard time separating myself from books and when this book you know just rubbed rubbed me like a brio pad in some areas with velvet on the surface and it it was distracting and disorienting and and heartbreaking in so many in so many ways Mm -hmm. we wanted to talk a little bit about the role of the artist in society and specifically the poet. Uh, there's a big chunk of this book that is devoted to the poetry of the of disputed origin, technically, uh, <laughs> being spouted by a man locked in the asylum. 
Um, what is Rosori saying about artists? Is it that artists are insane, or where where does artistic creation come from? Uh, we thought, as you are yourself a poet, you would have a great idea about like what come what, what is poetry built out of? Like, where does that come from? Poetry is built out of whatever we call poetry, whatever our culture calls. Yeah, that's the poetry. definition of poetry is very vast. Right, and anointed poetry, or the poetry that is highly successful in the current day, tends to be very accessible, tends to mm-hmm. communicate some aspect of the human condition in a way that is recognizable to a larger number of people. The madman in the asylum is what happened to a lot of poets, a lot of innovative yeah. poets under Stalin, under various dictatorships throughout the Eastern Bloc. They are saying things we don't want to hear, just like the prophet, right? This is how, why historically the poet and the prophet have been compared to each other. The stuff they are saying is ridiculous. It could never happen. Who's going to believe this, right? And whether the poet's responsibility is to this mad babble, right, which Daniel Carms and Oberiu would argue that it was, they would argue our job is not to write the realism that the state mm-hmm. needs for progress. Mm-hmm. Our job is to write the incantation of, you know, the undertones in a room, the stuff that is unspeakable. Absurdism plays into that. So, you know, I'm not sure. I think everyone, every poet has their own sense of their role. And every authority has something it desires from a poet. Yeah. Every chamber of commerce wants a poet to write the brochure. And mm. there it's 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 challenging, right? Would it would it in the end you are buried with your words and you die with them. So maybe it's better to be a little mad than yeah. <laughs> it is to to support power in the ways that it has shaped in this country and the world. I don't know. That's a beautiful answer. Yeah, yeah could imagine a better you. answer to that. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, I'm an existentialist about that. I, I don't think there's a, a broad ethical rule that can be drawn yeah. that applies to everyone. I don't think it, I don't, just like some poets will never publish a book and people will say, well, mm. they're not really poets. They are. They just never published a book because the market didn't want to publish them. If the market is making decisions, the market is deciding who is a poet, you know, that's a whole nother element. So I want to return to the title, which we talked about the Chernopole part a lot, but not the the Ermin, Mm -hmm. uh, which is famous as a wealthy woman's accessory, right? And it's part of that, the decadence and the performance. But the metaphor of it only really becomes clear at the very, very end of the book. You're kind of waiting the whole time. You're like, well, what's, when's this going to come up here? <laughs> so what did you read into the meaning of that, if anything? Well, I think you have to start with the epigraph, which he yes, from the, yes. from the Physiologos, yeah. which is this strange line, the ermine will die should her coat become soiled, right? And so this is, there's so many layers to, to that statement as you read mm-hmm. the book. The ermine as the coat, the detached dead coat, the the references to the mask, the ermine as alive in her coat, which has suddenly been designated as a coat, 
the death that happens maybe not because she becomes soiled, but because she is seen or noticed yeah. as soiled, right? There's, there's a, he quotes this esoteric text, you know, to, to initiate this strange character that is, or this strange sort of extended metaphor that I'm not sure is resolved. But what, what were your thoughts on, on the army towards the end? On the love and death of the army. Tildy gets out of the asylum and then he joins up with this prostitute woman. Of course, the quest was supposed to be about honor and about defending a woman who was promiscuous and defending right. her against that charge. And then he kind of embraces it at the end. And it's her, Ermine, that is sort of the shrewd over his dead body. And I think that just that paradoxical nature of it between this like symbol of wealth and highness and then like we said lowness lowness in terms of like cultural lowness but also like the lowness of the grave of death yeah right the exactly like you said the line is the ermine collar covered the bloody mess that had once borne his english expression when the professor when mitika povarchuk covers him with her coat Mm -hmm. And I think that that too is part of this strange reuse of this, of yeah. this symbol, this coat, this quasi mask-like object, but. Which is also the carcass of a dead animal. It yeah. is. <laughs> right. I mean, right? Like, yeah, it's, and, and, and it's not cotton. That's right. And, and, and I think that love and death, he makes this argument for this grotesque, view of Eros, which I think that that is another yes. thing that happens throughout this book and mentions it in that section in the love and death. The apes learn to speak and jabber away in countless tongues and behold, they love each other. <laughs> they caress each other. They pick fleas mm -hmm. from each other's behinds, right? Yeah. Because love is guilt, it promises salvation and then swindles it out of it. Eros, the charlatan, the quack, the barker, the thief, the con artist, but also Eros the beguiling and the the wonderful and the that that is constantly there as well there's the love story with within love stories within the references to the dragon slaying boldness of a verbal attack yeah. that happens you know <laughs> her so and so and blah, blah, blah. you know that the constant i don't know mythologizing that happens there's a ton of like contradictions in this ending and especially towards like what seems to be fatalistic, because quite often Rizori, like I talked about with Pascano, he'll introduce a character by saying, oh, they'll die this way. And then he'll get to their life. And he introduces this writer named Natsia, Natsie or something. <laughs> he introduces him by saying, oh, by the end, Tildy would put a bullet hole in his head. And you're like, oh, okay, so here's another character that we're going to introduce him by saying, oh, he dies. And so in this final chapter where Tildy takes this journey from finally escaping the asylum and trying to like finalize this honor that he was trying to defend this whole time to just having everything completely fall apart, Tildy finally puts a bullet hole in the head of Nazia, who was the first person that he had challenged to a duel. Mm. But Nazia lives. It, he, Rizori describes it in very great detail that, oh, it went through this part of the skull. And it missed this part of the brain and it exited through the back of the head where it completely missed this important part of the spine. 
And it seems like this fatalistic idea that, like, Tildy just cannot defend this I, this false, farcical idea of honor. And he ends up being, like, a dead ermine of a coat. She's just there to sort of be a window dressing. Almost. Maybe, a... maybe. But what if, what if the case is also that this idea, this character that we knew from the beginning was going to be shot in the head doesn't die. We mm-hmm. don't know that from the beginning, right? We assume yeah. that's going to be a set. So yeah, the, it's, it, it's an assumption. So every, there's a saying in the Romanian village that you, death knows your name already. Your death knows mm-hmm. your name, right? This is a very common in every, probably in a lot of village cultures and peasant cultures. But, and then your death will recognize you one day or will call you by your name. Yeah. Just like love. Love will call you by your name. I don't want to quote Leonard Cohen too much, but we could go on into Leonard Cohen lyrics. Uh, I will enjoy all the Leonard Cohen talk that you want. <laughs> These ideas are so, have been there forever. It's their eternality yeah. that is, and their and their little mix into stuff that is interesting. So this, the fate, you're going to be shot, and he's going to be shot in the head. Here's this guy. He's already expendable to us because he's introduced to us as something mm-hmm. that's going to die, but he doesn't die. It's really incredible. By some crazy, mm. crazy accident, he lives. <laughs> and the and the the humor in that is tied also to the tragedy of, to me, the accidental, the way that those who survived the Shoah in in that part of the world, it was often by accident. There was no Yeah. Nothing everything was contingent on these tiny bits of of Life, paper, documents, places, times, you know, even getting out, even running away, even being becoming a refugee and being able to board a ship. All these contingencies that have been, you know, well written by other authors. And I think that is somehow present there too, because von Rizori knew from a privileged position what it meant to be stateless. He knew as someone who would probably survive, right? Who would be okay. But he knew that world. Yeah. He knew he was not, he never tried to justify it or to no. use it to my knowledge. And actually, I didn't find this anywhere, at least in English online, but I have a German friend that I asked about this book. And he said, oh, I know von Rizori because he was the main radio coverager of, in Germany of the Nuremberg trials. And wow. so... You know, as you're saying, he comes from this privileged position of sort of understanding this random acts of tragedy and death that would befall upon people. I can't imagine what being a a radio operator for the Nuremberg trials would like insert into your brain that I could see later coming out with something like this. Mm -hmm. It makes sense a lot. The entire process of those trials and the elusiveness of justice, even with the sentencing, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't bring anyone back. No. There is no justice when you have no idea who you are and you have been torn, not just from your entire ancestry and home, you know, but also from every way in which you have known yourself or been permitted to know yourself. It's unspeakable, right? The atrocity is unspeakable. The trials attempt to speak it, to to make us find these rational lines, but the people who are did it are still there. And Von Rizori knew that, right? The vast majority of people who, who are complicit and who cooperate, they're the ones outside of the madhouse. Yeah. The guy in the madhouse 
he's probably the only one, in a sense, you know, if you're looking for a metaphor for the poet too. It moves me to know that he did that. I can't imagine that there wasn't a self-selecting element to that decision to be consistent mm -hmm. covering the trials, the Nuremberg trials, yeah. which articulated in many ways what we know or how we understand human rights yeah. legally and in international law. All right. So we wanted to move into last call. Are there any final points you want to mention <laughs> as we're wrapping up? The only final point is just from that farewell to childhood. Yes. Where he talks about anticipatory sadness. Mm. Almost like the preemptive grief of growing out of the childhood and knowing that you will come into the world. And he says, for years, I wasn't able to pick up a book or look at a picture that I had studied then without feeling the vague stimulus of a deeper recognition, an impact that strikes the core of our being, the sense of deja vu mingled with the nostalgia that comes when we re-encounter motifs from our childhood. And we regret having lost the power to experience the world in a way that brought us closer to the essence of things. Because we never again experience the world with the same thoroughness as in the stillness that fills us when we are completely alone and close to not being. The tranquility that is either the echo of the not yet being that precedes our birth or of the no longer being that follows death. And mm -hmm. I, he, he mentions that as a sort of rapture. And I, I find that um, as a writer, that is one of the spaces where one resides when, when writing. And that particular mm. form of intoxication that is this connection between not existing and being finished. And the book is that, the mind is that, the space is that, the characters are that. But also there's a nostalgia for real things that existed and happened that you can never touch again. Like mm -hmm. Chernobyl, can, he can mm. never touch that Chernobyl again. When the Hirsches go back to Chernobyl, it's not the same Chernobyl that they yeah. visited. They can never go. You can never go home again. I think is that the Thomas Mann line? Mm -hmm. mm. Stunning. That was a great yeah, point to really end good. on. Y'all are generous to my to my like obsessive. <laughs> no, no, you, <laughs> you illuminated this book in so many ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. And yeah. I want to thank you for bringing it to our attention because it wasn't one of the NYRB classics that was like really on my radar. Yeah. It's an older one. And it's just sort of, again, serendipity that brought it to me. I mean, it's from, I think it was mm -hmm. 2011 or this translation by NYRB, yeah. Phillips translation. And the way that I arrived at it was so serendipitous. And so when you all emailed, I was like, hmm, I wonder if I should roll the dice. I'm <laughs> glad you did. It and was I'm, glad, I'm glad that, that I had the opportunity to talk about it. Mm -hmm. and, and to you all for reading it with me. So thank you. Thank you. It was a delight. Are there any other NYRB classics that you're really passionate about that you want to shout out? Whew. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Which week of the month? Uh, uh, I just finished Stavsky, and I am blown away by... Oh, it. that was the one you tweeted about a couple days mm -hmm. ago, right? I am yeah. blown away by how beautiful it is, in the same way that I was blown away by Vasily Grossman, I think, when I first read Grossman. Mm. Um, just, We're going to read that one coming up. Mm, We're excited. Yeah. So wonderful. And Varlam Shalamov, which is like also a writer that just... The relationship between the, the attempts to reconcile 
the ineffable aspects of life with the inscrutably beautiful and painful nature of existence is present there. And the way that, I, I don't know, I think he re reconfigures ethics in a way that is relational and hopeful rather than based on rules, which to me is also compelling. Nice. So, yeah. I love Inway RB. They pick such such great books to they do. publish. Well, that was enlightening. That was incredibly enlightening. What a discussion. I really want to read the book she mentioned that traces the actual history of the city. Oh my gosh. And I loved how she was able to like say like this book mentions the beaches in the city and it's all those beaches were also mentioned here. Mhm. Mm and in the Kafka diaries. Oh, that's right. So, is it a classic or should it stay buried? I mean, it has to be a classic, right? I mean, it's it's the yeah. best. I think it would be a crime to bury this book. <laughs> Probably. I mean, it's it's kind of a hard it's hard it's a book that's hard to digest. Yeah. But it's also about things that are hard to digest. Mm-hmm. It's true. I really think of this book in a big way as a comparison to A High Wind in Jamaica. Because that book also includes things that are hard to digest, but like this book doesn't explicitly go into it. Like this book doesn't explicitly go into the Holocaust, even though it's there. And that book doesn't explicitly go into child molestation, even though that's there. Mm. The thing is, the reader really absorbs it without... It having to be testimony, instead it transforms into metaphor, just as uh, Vivian Gornick told us about last week. <laughs> um, and also in that way, it's very much a book about the world of children versus the world of adults. And the myth of childhood. Exactly. Uh -huh. I think in that book, it's, it's in a high one in Jamaica, it's almost about like the complete lack of knowledge that both sides of the coin have. And like, like you said, it's not innocence, but it's like this ignorance of what both sides can understand. And in this one, it's almost the exact opposite where the children seem to intake so much more than I think the adults realize and, and vice versa. I like the way that this city of Chernobyl is like, it is itself a childhood world that's vanished. Mm -hmm. Like childhood, with childhood vanishes the world as you thought it was. Yeah. And he, he recreated it. Truly. And that's what makes it special. And that's why... It, it should be a crime to bury something like this. Well, thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again mm -hmm. in, in two weeks when we discuss Peach Blossom Paradise, written by Guffey and translated by Kanan Morse, who may or may not be joining us to discuss the book. If you can, leave a rating and write a review of the podcast on your favorite platform. It helps people find our show and give us a subscribe. We also launched a bookshop.org page where you can purchase the books that we've covered or mentioned on the show or books written by our guests. And some of the proceeds from that go towards supporting the show. Both Dylan and I have made a list of books that we love on there, so yeah. it's just fun to browse if you're interested. Bye. Bye. I'm so sick of this Liberty Mutual commercial with the snap bracelet. <laughs> That's okay. There's enough for everybody. <laughs>